Mac Power Users, episode 616. The quality will be ensured with Daniel Jalkett. Hello and welcome back to Mac Power Users. My name is Stephen Hackett and I'm joined as always by my friend and yours, Mr. David Sparks. Hey, Stephen. How are you feeling? Um, better. Uh, uh, better. I think 90%. Did you just hear that Siri went off in my room when I said, hey, Steven? <laughs> I was no. wondering if that... Yeah, that's that's awesome. Thank you, Apple. <laughs> yeah, I keep my the HomePods in my studio where they don't listen, so it doesn't accidentally happen. But on occasion, I'll forget that, and like I'll be working on something. Like I've been building these frames for some acoustic uh, paneling, and I'll be like, I'll yell out, like, hey voice assistant play some music and they just don't do anything because I've told them to not listen. I have to go over and press the top. You can't win either way is what I'm saying. I think it's, I think it's funny that we all just decided to stop asking Apple to give us the option to change the call phrase. Like that was the thing for a long time. And now yeah. everybody just get, we've all surrendered. We're like, okay, well, I guess I'll just never use the word. Hey, again, except when talking to this digital assistant. Anyway, Boy, that that's a downer to start the show on. But hey, we we got a guest here. Welcome to the show, Daniel Jalkut. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, Daniel, I am um, I'm here to apologize to you. Uh-oh. We were looking what, at you do? it's been it has been almost ten years since you've been uh, on the show. No. I mean, what in the heck, man? I don't. I think it's Stephen's fault. I kept hey. saying like like five years ago. I'm like, we got to get Daniel back on, and Stephen's like, nope. Can't have that guy. Yeah, it seems true. like I was on a lot more often before Steven came wow. around. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, we all <laughs> we'll agree Steven's fault. <laughs> we all agree Steven's fault. Now, Daniel is, um, uh, po- you know, in the community, he podcasts, um, uh, he creates applications, he used to work for Apple, and he is a Mac Power user, and we are so happy to have you back. Awesome to be back. And yeah, as you said, it's actually, if we would have waited until February of 2022 it would be i think it was no march march of 2022 would be 10 years exactly so we got in under the wire we're gonna we're gonna keep it let's keep my visits to at least every 10 years well it's gonna be much more than that because you have so much great stuff to share when we're doing our prep call i'm like how did we not get daniel back sooner Mm. he has so much good information for our listeners but hey you know what we all make mistakes uh so we just got absolved you are you are forgiven we got to turn the page. You know. <laughs> um, the uh, a couple things before we get into the show today. Just a, a few announcements. If you're listening to this on Sunday when we release the episode, there's one day left. I'm doing a uh, you know just like everybody else. I'm doing one of those sales for Thanksgiving, um, but I've got a big one. It's twenty percent off everything in the store. It's Turkey Twenty One, and it's going to expire on Monday after the show publishes. So you're in just under the wire if you're interested in that. Um, also, I am speaking at the Nonprofit Productivity Summit, and it's a really great list of speakers: Mike Vardy, David Allen, some other folk. And um, it's about getting more productive when you run your nonprofit. Um, but there's, I think, actually a lot of great content in there, even if you're running a for-profit company. So go check it out, and uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. But it's uh, nonprofitproductive.com, and if you get to that website, you'll find the summit, and you can you can log in for it there. And on more power users today, 
we are going deep on cooking. Sometimes it's bratwurst, but today, gang, it's pizza. Um, um, Daniel is a – can I say you're a semi-professional pizza maker, Daniel? No, can... no, you, no you may not, but you may say <laughs> that I am a semi-confident uh, pizza maker. Let's I feel like way. when if you know when Italians see Daniel walking down the street, they bow down to him to say you are the greatest <laughs> pizza maker, right? Something like that. Anyway. It hasn't, ha- hasn't happened yet, but, yeah. uh, you know. Either way, when you take a nerd and give them some sort of cooking task, it always has interesting results. And we're going to get into that today in more power users. So I'm looking forward to that. Awesome. David, you you reminded me, you know, people know we record these in advance. And so sometimes I lose track of the timeline and it's happened to me. And so I I also have like a holiday discount thing going on. If you go, if you, well, we do collectively. Yeah. Yes. Uh, if you go to giverelay.com, we're doing a, a discount on annual memberships. So if you have somebody in your life that you want to give a membership for a relay show, if you want to give something to them or you want to send it to you know your significant other or your parents and they get you one, uh, you can do all of that, giverelay.com. And uh, More Power Users is, of course, there on the list. On the menu. Oh, you tied it back to the pizza thing. That's good. Yeah, I know, along with Daniel's excellent pizza. Yeah, we're getting saucy. Yeah, so more power users is the extended version of the show, ad-free. With And this week, you're going to learn about pizza. Usually, you learn about something nerdy um, in the after show. Sounds good. All right, Daniel. So um, I mentioned earlier some of the things you do, but, but tell us a bit about yourself. Well, um, a bit about myself. I'm really I identify around my indie software company, Red Sweater. Uh, been working on that, basically making Mac software for over you know 20 years now. Um, and you know, so it's been a, a gradual change from when I was younger. I really identified with being an uh, an engineer at Apple. Um, and I, I mean, just in summary, anyone who knows me online or in person. Knows I'm very, very Apple oriented. Um, my kids the other day learned about the rumors, you know, about the uh, the Apple making a self driving car, and it's kind of a game they have. It's like, well, Dad's going to get one. Uh, so I've always been a big, <laughs> big Apple fan. But I had the privilege of working for Apple from a very young age. I started my first uh, contract job at Apple was when I was 18. Oh, and. Um, I've uh, I I mean I felt like I managed to have a whole career at Apple even though I quit when I was 26. So I was like, I was um, you know, uh, spend a lot of time at Apple. Went off on my own. Started Red Sweater. Started making apps. Uh, these days I am sort of just back at the the challenge and the the thrill of trying to make my whole living from uh, making and selling mainly Mac apps. So that's sort of the summary. And um, apart from that, you know, I live in New England. I live in the Boston area, as you hinted at. Uh, I like to make pizza at home. I um, love uh, playing guitar. I like uh, going running. I'm an avid runner. And I'm a little bit of a smart aleck, as people quickly learn if they follow me on on Twitter. (laughs) It's right there in your Twitter handle, which always cracks yes. me up. Uh, so you you were at Apple. I, I'm, I mean, I've heard your story before, being 18, working. 
uh, on, a, on projects at Apple. Like, I mean, just what was that like? I mean, I'm trying to think back when I was 18, you know, starting college, like, I feel like in hindsight, still such a child in so, in so many ways. <laughs> like, how did that come about and, and what did you work on? Well, I, um, I, I grew up in Santa Cruz, which is just, uh, we call it over the hill um, from the Silicon Valley, which is where Apple is. You know, San Jose slash Santa Clara, Sunnyvale, all those little valley towns uh, in California, south of San Francisco. Um, Santa Cruz is the coastal town over the, over the mountain range from there. So uh, growing up where I did was a huge opportunity for me to get kind of connected with lots of different tech people. Um, and I, I ended up um, being kind of associated with the whole nerd scene in Santa Cruz. And then um, to some extent, some overlap with like San Jose area. Um, long story short, I was actually going to school um, at UC Santa Cruz and was friends with people. Some of them were working at Apple. And I didn't, I would have never thought in my wildest dreams, like, I'm just going to go get a job at Apple. But one of these people I knew said, you know, they're always looking to hire people as QA testers on like a contract basis. And I was like, really? How do you do that? And they said, well, just go to this, uh, go to this contract agency. You know, it was a, it was a time at, at which I guess most of Apple was um, kind of booking all these these jobs, you know, it was the kind of thing where if they're coming out with a new product, new version of a product, they might need suddenly like five times as many software testers. Hmm. Um, so they would ramp up and ramp down. Um, and it was just like kind of knowing the right person and knowing to go into this contract agency. And, you know, contract agency for folks who don't know is just like a, a highfalutin way of saying a temp agency. <laughs> it's like, yeah, temp temp jobs are contracts too, but um you know, it's just basically a way to get part-time or temp- temporary work. And um, I went in and I said, hey, um, I want to work at Apple. And they're like, okay. They asked me a few questions. I guess I kind of got the answers right. And the next thing you knew, I was testing on the System 7.5 uh, Mac OS team. And it was just really lucky break because um, a lot of people who got these these uh, short-term testing jobs or, you know, part-time, whatever, um, they would end up in the kind of, they they had an area at Apple called Central Quality, which sounds like something out of a, you know, dystopian. Yeah, Yeah. George Orwell. Yeah, (laughs) welcome to Central Quality. The quality will be ensured. Um, But I was lucky to end up in an embedded quality job working with the engineering team. So like a bunch of developers, in other words, working with programmers who actually did the work on system 7.5. And that was a big lucky break for me because um, I didn't make a secret of the fact that I wanted to be a developer. I wanted to work on, you know, coding. And luckily that team was so welcoming to me that it's not like it was a, it wasn't like a sure thing, but I was in the right place to be able to get the guidance and assistance to sort of figure out how to approach eventually applying for and then getting a job as an engineer in that team. Yeah. I mean, it's nice. Did they take you under your wing to a certain extent? You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, it it was great. It it was, yeah, as you can imagine, there's every different type of person in a group, uh, you know, that 
So some of the people were more like taking me under their wing and some of them were more like trial by fire, like just, you know, and some of my fonder memories actually are of some of the people who kind of, they just, their, their method was just to give me really hard things to do. Hmm. And, um, so my, the one I like to tell the story about is one of my coworkers at that time. Uh, and this was stuff that they were just asking me to do in my spare time, like out, outside of work. It wasn't like things for the job. It was just yeah, like, you weren't, exer- weren't on the clock. Yeah. No, I was off the clock and it was basically like, Hey, I want to get good at this. So one guy says, um, okay, you know, this app on the Mac called simple text. Uh, that's what they used to call the text edit, you know, basically the equivalent of text edit today. Yeah. So he says, I want you to write, rewrite simple text using assembly language. <laughs> and I was like, okay, what's, you know, how, you know, and it's like, he's like, you'll, you'll figure it out. So this is an example of like, it's almost like yeah. a, a phase of a Kung Fu training movie or something, you know, it's uh, I wrote assembly language on Atari at the time, and I, it was hard. I mean, because it was not – it was binary. I mean, it was numbers. It wasn't yeah. even language. Wow, that's impressive. I mean, this in this case, it wasn't – you know, I, there were instructions. You, you typed it out. Yeah. It was um, – but but the, what was cool about it was it gave me um, a very com- – a very – a level of uh, comfort with how the whole Mac – toolbox and everything is put together and how um because it was kind of like having to um kind of like having to dissect the whole frameworks of the mac figure out yeah. like how does this work um which you know to the credit of that guy who gave me this task it turned out to be very good for setting me up to confidently sort of apply to do the work that that group was doing and that was great. Uh, I mean, I, I, I've never been, like, overly confident about anything, to be honest. I, it's kind of funny because I think a lot of people I, – I, I come across sometimes as being pretty confident. But it's really only the things that I've kind of come to recognize I actually can do. Um, and at that time, I was really not confident. But I was, like, you know, I guess just – bold enough to say let me let me try to do this Hmm. um and they gave me the you know they basically gave me the test and i ended up eventually getting a job in that group and worked there until uh, right around um the the developer preview for mac os 10 was about to come out and then i switched over to the mac os 10 team and worked on uh work on a group called core services, which is still a, a framework, still a group, I think. Um, and worked on that uh, for a few more years. And then I left Apple in 2002. So um, that's like two Mac power users appearances 20 years yeah, ago. Man. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, and then from there you went out on your own and you started red sweater. Yeah. I mean, it's funny at the time I had actually started red sweater technically as a just like a little side thing, Apple was a lot less, um, at least a lot less obviously uptight about like people doing stuff on the side back then. Um, so I had yeah, people knew at work that I had Red Sweater was a little company I had started in San Francisco. Um, make, I was making a few little, you know, shareware type things we called them at the time. And then when I when I quit Apple, um, I actually 
quit in order to go back to school, but um, I started doing contract contract work at that time uh, for programming, and I did that all through Red Sweater. And then, so it wasn't until a few years later that I stopped doing the contract work and started um, started focusing on the apps again. You know, growing up in you know the valley. How was it that you latched onto Apple? Because there are so many great tech companies there, and you know there were a lot, lot of stuff going on. What was it about Apple that sucked you in? Oh yeah, it could have gone any number of ways. In fact, um, being such a nerd in such a highly connected place, there were other companies that I was very intrigued by. You know, I used to um, used to drive up from Santa Cruz up through San Jose. Um, up to Berkeley, Oakland area. And this drive on 880 in uh, the Bay Area would take you by the huge Sun Microsystems uh, offices. I think I think they're Tesla now. I think that, I think I might have that right. Um, but uh, I would fantasize about working at Sun. And in fact, one of my computers before um, I got a Mac was a Sun 3 slash 50. Um, I was full on in the Unix world as a as a teenager and then into um you know almost into adulthood but then it was because of these connections with friends in Santa Cruz a friend I knew who worked at Apple showed me the PowerBook Duo 210 and I was just in love with it I was like this is amazing and I had never really used a Mac at that point and um but it convinced me I wanted to I wanted to switch, switch to Mac. And that was it. So once I was using Macs, my interest in working for the other companies was less, you know. And then and then just sure. everything sort of coming together. Um, I couldn't resist one, you know, being a Mac user, happening to live 45 minute drive from Apple, that was great. And of course, uh, eventually the Unix stuff would Kind I know, of come right. back around. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, you know. Um, at Apple, I um, I was one of the one of the you know, relatively speaking, one of the first people in the company to have a Unix email address because when I started working there, everyone was still using an older pre-internet system called QuickMail. Um, and but they had at the time, Apple had this sort of lesser-known Unix system. Um, and they had a, a system at work that we could get accounts on. And because I came into the company, I'm like, Hey, I love Unix. Let's, uh, let's see what you got here. And so I got my, um, jalkit at apple.com at the time. And it was fairly, um, unusual as the years went on to have an email address like that, because by default, a- Apple's one of those companies where by default, uh, once they started giving everybody email addresses, they give it to you like I should have been like Jalkda one or something, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had this just plain Jalkit at Apple.com because I had just picked my own account on the Apple Unix uh server, and then that all got rolled over when when everyone else started getting email. That's cool. Yeah, well that's that's why they have Unix, right? Because of Daniel, right? That's like, right. Oh, you're, yeah. you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> we we gotta make the email work with Daniel. So let's just go yeah, ahead right. and add Unix. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it was a, such an exciting time. I mean, just thinking the the time frame from seven point five to the early days of OS ten, 
Yeah, it you was a big. Oh yeah, you couldn't pick. Well, I guess you'd be hard pressed to pick a a time frame that had more change, at least on the software side. Yeah, well, absolutely. And it was also um, the existential time for the company. Like right. when I got when I got hired, um, I was hired full time as an employee in 1996. <laughs> Everyone knows, great year for Apple. <laughs> great year for Apple. Yeah. I mean, I can't even believe they were hiring people. But the, sure. the, the, the funny timing of it was I was hired, and then maybe three to six months later, they had massive layoffs. And I thought for sure I was going to get laid off because I was like the last one in, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I ended up, ended up uh, get, being kept on. Uh, but at that time, I mean, I didn't really appreciate it as much at the time as I do in retrospect, but they were really like almost out of money. And so I was there when, uh, when I was hired, Gil Emilio was the CEO and I was there when Steve jobs came back. I was there when the IMAX debuted. And so I kind of went from this on the, on the edge of going out of business uh, to, you know, IMAX coming out, Mac OS 10 coming out. And then finally the iPod, coming out and i got my um i got my ipod the very first ipod they they didn't give everybody in the company an ipod but they let everybody buy one for half price so that's how i recall it so i got my ipad uh, ipod and then it was fairly soon after that that i left the company but i got to see the company go from like almost out of business to selling ipods which was a huge change you know over six years it's amazing in retrospect did you witness a culture change during that time? I mean, in hindsight, everybody must think that there was one, but that's not necessarily true. You know, I mean, the company mm-hmm. was in trouble, and then they were on the rise. But at the line level you were at, did did anything really change? Um, it was a very interesting time because it was the, with the next acquisition. It was um, a culture, more of a culture blending than a culture change per se. Like a lot of Next culture came into the company, but a lot of classic Mac sort of, you know, aesthetics and ideals persisted at the company. Uh, so some people inevitably felt left out and I think left the company or their values, their culture didn't persist. But yeah, um, it really did change a lot, but kind of depended what group you were in, I think, how much you noticed it being a change. Um, and some groups were some, I think some groups, it was probably fair to say sort of came from next and, and really retained a lot of next character, like the app kit group, uh, within, you know, the frameworks, you know, the OS 10 division, um, would have been a lot more next culture and, um, some of the lower level groups, um, that, that, you know, like. Didn't, that didn't get, you know, if you were working on like the hardware for the Mac, a power PC or something, you weren't going to get a lot of influence from the next side of things. So I think it did change a lot. Um, but what I'm so impressed by, even after 20 years, and I mentioned this to you guys before um, we recorded, but like, I don't know that, I don't know as much as I used to know about the company. But I'm so impressed after 20 years, and especially after 20 years of this massive success, how there's still quite a few people I know who are still working there. And there seems to be a lot of the same culture at the core. 
So that's that's for as an Apple fan, that's sort of gratifying to me that they have managed to maintain that. Yeah, you know, there's two companies I have a lot of friends that work for, and it's Apple and Disney. And I feel like they're similar in that there are people that go to those companies as a calling more than just a job. And so long as the company doesn't blow it, they have the ability to keep really talented people a real long time. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely, and it was always the reputation at Apple that you weren't going to get paid the most money at Apple. You get paid a a fair amount of money, you know, good, especially if, uh, in in retrospect, some people got paid very well in terms of, like, stock compensation. Sure. Yeah, but um, it was never the place where, if, if, if you were an engineer looking to, for the highest bidder, you would never end up at Apple, you know? Um, so it was this, the case that you sort of had to have a reason to want to work at Apple. Um, and that was, you know, I think it was frustrating in some ways to, to some people, maybe to me at sometimes, um, in the sense that you maybe don't always feel like you're getting everything you're owed per se. Um, but, you know, it meant that everyone who was there was there for probably something besides just the money. This episode of MPU is made possible by 1Password. If you've ever forgotten a password or a login, you don't have to worry about that anymore because with 1Password, you can store all of your credentials in addition to things like secure notes, credit card information, bank account routing numbers, everything in one safe, strong place. That's what 1Password is. It's a home for all of your secure information. You can use it to create strong, unique passwords that you can use out on the web and in applications. And the best part is you don't have to remember them because they're all stored in one password, easily available on all of your devices. If you're on a Mac, you can use Touch ID or the Apple Watch Unlock. On an iPhone or iPad, you can use Face ID. It's with you wherever you are. With one password for families, you can share login information with the important people in your life. And with one password for teams, you can create one password vaults for different coworkers managing access to critical information with fine grained control. Of course, one password does work across a wide range of browsers and devices. No matter where I am in my life, I have access to all of my logins, all of that secure information. One of my favorite things and thing that I use pretty often is storing bank account information where I need to give it to a sponsor or to a vendor so they can route money to us. Or it's just, it's one of those things that I don't want to dig out a check and find the numbers. I don't want to log in to the bank website and try to find the information. I just have it saved in one password. And with one password for teams, the people I work with have access to it as well. So head on over to onepassword.com slash MPU to learn more and to sign up for a free 30-day trial. Once you do, you'll get 20% off. That's onepassword.com slash MPU. All right. So since it's only been 10 years since you've been on the show, I'm assuming you're still using all the same gear, right? Yeah, I probably, uh, it's funny. I didn't think about looking up um, my last appearance. I think it was like number 76 or something. Um, I'm going to look it up right now because I'm I feel so like curious. you're rubbing it in now. I feel like you're just rubbing it in. 76. David yeah. and Katie chat with developer Daniel Jalkit, who is 12 years old. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
This is so cool. Uh, it's funny. I, I, I have to say, some of this stuff is really, really out of date, and some of it I am still using. Uh, some of the some of the stuff looking back ten years ago includes, for example, um, accessorizer, which was a little utility that you used to use to write little snippets of code um, for Objective C. Uh, but there's other stuff, um, you know, Audio Hijack Pro is on this list. And I am recording this right now as we speak in Audio Hijack. So some things change, some things stay the same. Yeah. Well, what about your hardware? What has changed? Everything has changed this, yeah. this year because of the Apple Silicon MacBook Pro. I don't even have, I don't have the slightest clue what I was using back then 10 years ago, but I can tell you with certainty, I was not as excited about it as I am about this Mac that I'm recording on right now, because um, like so many Mac users, especially Mac power users, um, these new M1 based MacBook Pros are just stunning. Like they are, they are, they just, they tick so many boxes uh, for those of us who've been waiting for a substantial update to the MacBook Pro line. So that's what I'm using. I got one of these MacBook Pro. I I ended up going for the um, 14-inch. It was a little bit of a struggle deciding which size to get. Um, Went for the 14-inch, but I went for pretty pretty powerful. I got like 64 gigs of RAM, um, 64 GPUs, which I'll probably never use, uh, GPU cores, I guess. Um, is it 64 or 32? I don't even remember, but, um, I got a, I got a lot of power there and, um, I got the, uh, the so-called M1 max and, um, I ended up going with the 14 inch and then compromising on the size there uh, by getting a monitor for the first time in a long time. So, so, I've been, so what, let me interrupt right there. So yeah, what, yeah. what went into your thinking between 14 and 16? I know a lot of listeners are writing us struggling yeah. with that mm-hmm. same question. It was tough. And in fact, I ordered the 16 inch at first and then I had to make the painful decision to give up my fairly early delivery date. Oh uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's like, Oh, 16 inch. Yeah, sure. Go for it. And I got like a, you know, at the time, a few weeks earlier than, than some people um, date. And then I was like, you know what? I can't do the 16 inch. I, I, I sort of uh, had been using the 16 inch Intel MacBook Pro. And when I stopped to think about it, I realized one of the things that didn't bring me joy about that was lugging the 16 inch around. It was not as fun. It's not, it's not nice um, yeah. for my needs for, uh, I realized you know, the, the things that were tugging at me were, one, I did want my portable computer to be as portable as possible. And two, at that point in time, I had committed to using a portable computer as my main computer. Um, and oh, my my sort of fixed view of how that was going to work was I was going to use the built-in screen. So it better be as big as possible. It better be 16 inches. And it was deciding to indulge myself with the possibility of a desktop monitor that pushed me towards saying, you know what, I'm going to get the 14 inch. I'm going to enjoy every portable aspect of this computer and I'm going to figure it out on the desktop. I'll figure something out. And so I'm looking at the monitor right now. I ended up being pretty happy with, I know, you know, I know a lot of people are waiting for Apple to come out with a pro 
like level monitor. Um, and a lot of people have compromised with the uh, 5K LG monitor. Mm-hmm. And I compromised even further with the 4K LG 24-inch uh, monitor. So it's fairly small in terms of big monitors, but it is pretty pretty good, in my opinion. So, so I'm it's feeling a lot bigger than 16. That's right. It's a lot bigger than 16, and being um as but being as small as it is while still being 4K. It in, in other words, like it's a lot um tighter resolution than yeah, pixel density is high yeah the pixel yeah. density is fairly high mm-hmm. um and i'm happy with it so it was about 700 dollars um not nothing it's a lot of money for you know just a monitor but it is um i think money well spent for this compromise i've made and i have just been so happy with the with the macbook itself i have no complaints and that's not that's not my personality. <laughs> <laughs> now, as somebody who's been like not only working with Macs but writing on the Mac operating system in the past, yeah, um, I'm interested in your decision to be a only laptop guy. I mean, have you ever been a two Mac person, or you know, how did you decide that you're going to try and pull it all off with one computer? Yeah, I used to be um, a, t- a two Mac person for years, um, and. All of that time, you know, that was back when it was fairly difficult to maintain like a synchronization setup. You would have, um, you know, over the years, I used different approaches, including like uh, R-Sync or um, different different apps that do this kind of stuff. I never really got into because I well, I'll just say like I got out of that lifestyle before um you know these days a lot of people just put everything on dropbox or whatever um and i got out of that lifestyle before um it was even easy to do uh, Mm -hmm. a cloud a cloud-based thing so um basically at some point i just realized laptops were good enough power wise and in fact back when i first started doing this i did have an external monitor so i had an external monitor external keyboard and I kind of did the the clamshell life. And then over time, for some reason, I think you know what happened? Over time, the laptop monitors turned retina, and I didn't have retina monitors. So I ended up just using the laptop. Um, I would put the laptop up on a stack of books and then use that 16-inch laptop screen as my, my whole monitor, um, which is small, but I got used to it. And... Uh, but the trade-off for me was just knowing with 100% certainty at any any time where all my stuff was. And it was always right on my MacBook. Uh, and I like, I think I still want to want to keep that um, because, you know, life is kind of complicated enough without having to wonder where your stuff is. And I just love being able to, I'm looking at the, my MacBook right now. I love the fact that I can grab that MacBook and go and I know I have everything of digital importance to me, really. So now it's been almost a year and a half since Apple first announced the switch to Apple Silicon, but it was rumored a lot before that. Uh, the whole laptop line now is on Apple Silicon, which is what you use. Um, what is the biggest surprise to you with this transition, you know, being somebody who's watched this happen before? Yeah, uh, well, I'll ha- I have to say, I think um, Apple, whoever worked on 
the technology that they call Rosetta 2, which is the technology that makes the um, Apple Silicon Macs able to run Intel-based apps. Whoever worked on that should just feel really proud. And I think I haven't heard anybody say anything negative about Rosetta 2. So that's that's really unusual for a technological achievement to just have it be so widely met with acclaim. Um, and, and, and the acclaim is almost understated because because it just works, you know. Most people don't even think about it. Uh, us nerds who know that it's complicated to have a, a program that was compiled for an Intel chip uh, just seamlessly run on a, a, a computer that doesn't have an Intel chip. We appreciate it. Everyone else just thinks, "Well, my apps still work. Of course, they still work." Um, and th- so, the biggest surprise to me is actually that it works quite as well as it does and that it's as fast as it is. And even, um, you know, uh, there's there's very few short shortcomings to um, the experience of running an Intel app on an Apple Silicon Mac. I don't know if you guys have had that experience, but you really kind of, it's it, it says everything you need to know that you usually have to go look in the um, system monitor to find out whether yeah, an app actually, even yeah. is running natively or not well i got a good story on that i am there's i'm not a huge gamer but there's this one game that i've played for years it's called star wars the old republic it's one of those online role-playing games Mm. and yeah i'm that guy who plays that but the um i'm a star wars nerd so i go in there once in a while and i have a little jedi and i check out what's going on and the um i have run that now successfully for a while in crossover you know, Crossover is this weird app that interprets the Intel Mac code to the Intel Windows code. So it's literally a translation layer, um, you know, translating from Mac into Windows on Intel hardware. And for a year or so now, they've been able to run this game, which means I don't have to run like, um, you know, Parallels or a win- virtual Windows machine. So it's been great. Yeah. That is not translated to Apple Silicon. So now it's it is an Intel app running in interpreted code <laughs> to Windows that is now going through Rosetta to Apple Silicon. So it's getting translated twice now, and I get amazing frame rates. And it's just like <laughs> it's faster than a, like a gaming Windows PC to me. And I don't because I had a gaming Windows PC for a while that I was doing a screencast project and I installed the app on there. It runs better on this double translation layer than it yeah. does on an actual Windows computer. So I'm, I can't get over <laughs> it. You know, <laughs> you know, that's, um, I've also looked at crossover. It's, uh, and for folks who don't know, um, it's based on the open source wine, um, uh, project. Yeah. Uh, and that's a really interesting approach. It basically tries to provide, all of the APIs that an app on Windows would call, um, it provides like its own implementation of it. I think that's how it works. Um, but um, I, you know, speaking of crossover and, and VMware and parallels and all this stuff, that is um, one of the most, that's I think one of the areas that people need to be most most cautious about when they switch to um, Apple Silicon because, the fact is you can't run Intel Windows on VMware 
the way you could on an Intel Mac. Sure. So those those of us who got in the habit of being able to just you know pop in uh, VMware and boot up Microsoft Windows, it's not quite that simple. Uh, I think you can boot the ARM version of Windows, but um, I haven't tried that yet. But I have looked into some of these other solutions because I t- I too have a couple random Windows things I need to run. Um, and I would say my experience so far is it's not, the things I've run are not quite as good as they would have been in VMware, but it's just so amazing that they work at all. That um, And the fact that there is a, a, a way forward there. But for some people and some apps, they should be aware that there, there's probably some apps that people are used to running in Windows that they'll have to get used to not being able to run. So that's one thing where as much as I can say like Rosetta works so great, um, the, the system is awesome, it's powerful, et cetera, et cetera. That's one area where if you've got like a advanced CAD program or something that you've been running in VMware, that's probably something to check out first before you make the leap. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of folks, we've heard from people that like have accounting software that's Windows based, or they'll put a Windows machine in the corner just to run a specific app. But Mm -hmm. in this case, it's a game. And honestly, if the game stopped working, it would probably be good for me if it stopped working. (laughs) But I thought, well, I'll try it. What the heck? And I was shocked that it worked in crossover. I thought, then I thought, well, they must have translated crossover to Apple Silicon already. And then I went in Activity Monitor and says Intel. I'm like, wow, this is really impressive yeah that that sort of technology when we don't talk about it like that's the goal of the people who built it i think right be invisible be transparent and no one has to think about it which is what apple wants but i mean i'm like cranking up the image quality and the frame rates and it runs fine but you yeah. know, granted <laughs> i have a vastly you know massive m1 that i'm running mm-hmm. on now so right uh, but anyway yeah it's impressive i agree but Daniel, you do have a second Mac running around. Uh, you've got a, a Mac Mini on the shelf, don't you? I do, yeah. Um, in fact, now that Mac Mini, though, is also Apple Silicon. Um, so I'm running out of Intel Macs very quickly, uh, which is not the worst thing. But um, yeah, so I guess at some point along the line, my compromise became, I, you know, I wasn't going to have a desktop Mac and a laptop Mac, but the nature of my work being so um, development-oriented really lends itself to having uh, a Mac that's just sort of on, you know, an on-demand service provider Mac, um, also known as a build server, <laughs> you know. But I, I use it for a lot of things. So I use it as the build server. So that, for folks who don't know, that means, like, if I make some changes to an app I'm programming I commit the changes and I push them. That means you basically upload them to your your server that holds all your source code. And then um, typically a build server will then check out the code, copy the code back down to a computer, recompile it, run tests on it, do all this stuff to kind of make automated quality control. Um, And as a single person company, it's especially important, I think, for me to find ways to, you know, sort of increase the, increase the leverage I have with, with my limited time and, um, you know, the, and things that a computer can help me to automate, I lean heavily into that. So 
Uh, I have a whole Mac that's just dedicated to basically running automated tests on my code, um, but it also serves as kind of like the house the house server. So you know, you know, there's these cool kind of power user features where if you have a Mac running in your in your house, you can set it up to um, like cache downloads from Apple. So you can have it um, so that if everybody in your house needs to update like their version of iOS, it'll go through the, um, it'll cache it on like the the home server. Uh, so I have it set up to do some things like that. It's sort of like my gateway to, to the world. Um, like if I need to you know, connect back to my Mac, so, so to speak. That that kind of stuff all goes through that one computer. So uh, it's a relatively small investment because I don't even need a monitor for that computer. It just hangs out in my basement, really close to my um, my internet connection, and just a Mac Mini just sits there, plugged in with Ethernet right to my uh, internet connection. And I connect to it through screen sharing. That's it. Even in the the Apple Silicon world, world with this powerful MacBook Pro at your desk, you you still find it uh, valuable to have some, another machine. It sounds like you don't want to bring it all onto one. Yeah, I mean, and and, and but that that strategy was maybe rooted more in, you know, feeling the limits of one computer before. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wouldn't want to like knowingly give up any of the power of this, this great MacBook pro. Uh, even if I wouldn't notice it most of the time, but it's funny you say that because one of the great thrills of having this new computer now is for the first time in years, I'm having that experience where there's so much headroom in terms of performance and like RAM and everything I use that, you know, as I'm recording with you, it's funny. Um, if I was still using my Intel MacBook pro, I would have restarted my Mac and like quit all the apps and all these kind of like, uh, ceremonial steps to make, to make sure you don't like run into trouble. Um, and I have to admit, I didn't do any of that. And I have like 20 apps running and knock on wood, but, I think that's going to be fine. And it's because I don't run into the limits of, of this Mac. Um, but you know, give me some time. I might, I might. And then it's just nice. Um, whatever you're doing with the nice thing about off offloading that kind of like menial update running tests type stuff is it just has zero impact on me in, in my, in my workspace. You know, it's, it's something that's happening elsewhere. And, um, so even if it was just a tiny performance degradation, just, you know, having it go on, it does, it just has no place on my Mac, my main Mac, if, if it can be easily done somewhere else. And it also has, um, advantages. I tend to keep that build server, um, at a fairly conservative OS release, you know, so, you you'll you'll run into this a lot if you talk to iOS developers in particular or uh, even Mac developers but they'll um they'll say they can't like update to the latest xcode because you know then they won't be able to distribute their app anymore because you're supposed to use like the the only the official version of xcode so i'm always living on the cutting edge with um with my my main mac 
And then the conservative Mac Mini is there just like completely reliable. So in addition to what I what I was saying about automatic tests and stuff, it's also the computer that generates any build of my apps that's going to go out to the public. So it's completely predictable. It's always running a predictable OS, a predictable Xcode, et cetera. And it's just nice to have kind of that mix of um, something that, He's all business, you know, it just gets the job done. And then my main Mac, which I can run beta OS is on. I can take my own different, different risk profile there. That's kind of nice. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Text Expander from Smile. Go to textexpander.com slash podcast to get 20% off and type more with less effort. I really believe Text Expander is the killer app for everyone. We're all familiar with the idea of text expansion. You type a few letters and a bunch of other letters immediately just blip in and replace a lot of typing for you. It's a basic feature in most operating systems, but the problem is that they sell it as a basic feature. Text Expander turns text expansion into an advanced feature because there's so much more you could do with just a little extra effort, and Text Expander goes to that effort at great length. For instance, let's say you're doing an email and you want the ability to just type in the person's name. With Text Expander, you can have a text expansion snippet that prompts you to type in the person's name. Another one would be the contents of your clipboard. Maybe you saved a special phone number or contract number or some complicated bit of text out of a different document that you want to drop in a text expansion. Well, you can't do that with all the basic text expansion tools out there, but Text Expander can grab the clipboard contents and put them in for you. Another common one is dates. You always want to insert dates into your snippets. Like when I send out bills, I want it to have the current month and the current year and the subject line. Text Expander does that for me. It just grabs the current date and month. It inserts them in. I don't have to manually do that. So all of the little pain points you have with text expansion or all the reasons why you can't use it the way you really want to, those are solved with Text Expander. The team behind Text Expander really wants it to be the greatest text expansion app ever, and they're delivering on that. It's available on multiple platforms, the Mac, Windows, uh, iOS, so you can get it wherever you need it. They have publicly available text expansion snippet libraries you can download if there's certain things that you want to make sure you get covered. When you use Text Expander, you can say the right thing in just a few keystrokes, and it's really better than copy and paste or scripts and templates. It is dynamic, it's there with you, and it's super easy to create and modify. And best of all, it works on any platform and any app, anywhere you type. So take your time back and increase your productivity. Go to textexpander.com slash podcast and sign up now, and you'll get 20% off your first year. Once again, that's textexpander.com slash podcast. Thank you, Text Expander, for all of your support of the Mac Power users. Uh, Daniel, before we went to the break, you were talking about that Mac Mini and other uses for it. And I know there's a lot of listeners that have an extra Mac Mini hanging around. Um, what are some of the other things you're doing with it kind of as a power user? Yeah, well, um, so one of the things is it it's um I said it was, you know, in my basement hooked up to the the Ethernet. It's also got a pretty sizable external hard drive plugged into it. And that is nice because it turns out to just be 
the uh, you know almost infinite seeming capacity place to put stuff. Um, yeah. So I have that. Uh, there's also also this other caveat of you know folks. Um, a lot of folks use some kind of backup software. Like I use Backblaze, and often these backup software cloud services they let you back up anything that's like plugged into your Mac. Well, that Mac has plugged into it this giant hard drive, um, and then. What I'm doing is I'm using that to like offload things that I don't want on my main Mac, but also to run um, time machine backups for myself and other people in my family. So having a kind of central place where it's 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 kind of similar to the idea of offloading the the, the CPU tasks of doing all the automated build testing. Um, it's offloading the archive task of just kind of keeping a bunch of stuff. And I feel pretty good about it because I can, I'm basically backing up to this central Mac mini that is then in turn being backed up to Backblaze. Um, and so I think that any, anything that kind of like gives you a kind of sense of permanence, uh, it's, it's also the fact that like the, the great thing about a portable, like the MacBook pro is you can take it anywhere, but that means there's there is a chance you're gonna lose it, right? So yeah. um the Mac Mini, you know, is very unlikely to get lost. It could suffer, you know, from a natural disaster or something, but um it's got a it's got a real clear, stable place in and it's likely to stick around. Yeah, and if that's of interest to you, dear listener, uh episode four sixty-five, the mighty Mac Mini, uh Stephen and I kind of went in great detail about all the things you can do with a Mac Mini, which I feel like it has even new life with these. In, uh, I was about to say Intel yeah. guys. Yeah, it has even more new life with this new Apple Silicon Max. Is it's like it just gives it so you know gives it wings really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there was a time there. You all remember that everyone was worried that Apple was going to abandon the Mac Mini. Oh yeah, right? yeah. And it was like um, wasn't that the the famous? It remains a product in our lineup. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, that was like the most anybody could get Apple to say about the future of the Mac Mini. And so when it came out with, I think it was, if I'm remembering right, it had like a kind of a glorious last Intel update a few years ago. And then um, and then when it came out with the Mac Mini or with the uh, Apple Silicon, everyone was just like, well, this is great. It has like. It still has all the ports, has, you know, this great new chip. Uh, obviously, now people, I think, are curious about, like, a Mac Mini Pro or something. But, um, yeah, it's a really cool, really versatile little computer. Uh, and I know I know some people would really love to see something even smaller, you know, even more sort of you know, puck-sized. But it's a really great way to just get a good Mac into, into a place where it needs to be. Now, if you wind back the clock a few years ago, um, during the times you were in the wilderness and not on MPU, I don't know, you know, what you can, it's all <laughs> I must Steven's have been fault. missing in action, right? <laughs> and that's all Steven's fault. But the, um, <laughs> the, um, there was this time where we had all these guests on where the show would start, you know, I'd ask you about their hardware and we'd inevitably hear my keyboard on my laptop failed or th- mm-hmm. there's always some problem with an Apple laptop. That was how we started every show over like three years. Yeah. And um, 
the um, now I feel like we're kind of out of that, but we're in a different wilderness now where the underlying programming, you know, calls for the Mac are a little bit kind of up in the air. So uh, I'm going to summarize as best as I can, but I'd like you to kind of chime in with me here. First of all, we've got, you know, the, the historical, you know, app kit, which is where you build applications. It's the stuff that existed when you were back at Apple and has been part of Mac OS 10 for the whole time. So that's, that's the first one, right? Yep. Okay. And then when you've got Swift UI, which Apple has announced uh, a few years ago, which is kind of meant to ultimately be the replacement for that. I mean, I guess I'm not sure if they've said that yet, but it seems like that's where they're heading. Yeah. I think that's strongly hinted. Yeah, and then they've got Catalyst, which is the ability to take your iOS and your iPad app and put it on the Mac, which is kind of somewhere in between those two. And and then we've got yeah. this growing and then we've got this growing movement for people making apps uh, largely electron, but uh, there's also other technologies involved where you make an app one time on some um, third party utility, and then you can distribute it to the iPhone and the iPad and Android and Windows and wherever you want to put it. And yep. so we've we've got all of these competing platforms now, and it hasn't always been that way, right? I mean, for most of your career, it's just been AppKit. Yeah, I mean, well, I was at Apple also when they did that huge transition from the classic Mac OS frameworks to AppKit, um, and that was a very disruptive time for existing Mac developers. Like at that time, so for folks who don't know, AppKit was the Next um, technology, came from Next. So before Apple acquired Next, there was no AppKit at Apple. Um, it was all based on these frameworks that ended up being called Carbon. Um, they used to just be called the Mac Toolbox, was uh, the, the traditional name for it. So at that time, when um, when OS X was first coming out, AppKit was still relatively unused, and so it was it was back then, like around, let's say the year two thousand. That was about you could look at AppKit back then, and as far as most Mac developers were concerned, it was about as new as things like Swift UI are now. Um, and so at that time, you look at a company like Adobe; they were not going to switch away from carbon to to um app kit yeah but then uh, the, the one thing that was nice though was it was fairly clear i mean there were times when it was less clear but there was a linear um progression that apple laid out it was kind of obvious to most people that app kit and coco as they as they dubbed the whole system was going to be the future for apple app development for mac app development right uh and so, you, you know, some people could be in denial and say like, well, Coco, carbon forever, it's never going away. But most people kind of got the memo, you know, it's like, yeah, I think it is going away and this is what's replacing it. And so what's so different now is, like you said, it's not totally obvious what's, what's replacing AppKit or even if AppKit is being replaced. It's not, it's not nearly as obvious. and. Uh, I think you did a good job summarizing it. We got, um, the, we have, you know, all of the Apple options, which, like you said, there's basically three right now: AppKit, Swift UI, and Catalyst. But then, yeah, complicated by the fact that there's web-based 
desktop app solutions like Electron, but then also just the web itself, just using, you know, just running stuff in the browser. Yeah. Let's face it, is the most successful application platform of all time. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's it. That's it it's it's one as far as a broad definition of app platform. Uh so somebody looking today to make a new app of any kind, um, they have to decide between all these pros and cons. Um, and I wish it were more straightforward. And I feel like a lot of people are frustrated that Apple hasn't hasn't done a better job, um, first of all, of just sort of differentiating the the native experience from the web-based experience in a way that makes it more clear to people, like, why would you want to keep doing this? Um, but then second, that their native offerings are so divergent from one another. And yeah. you, you, you summarized it um, in terms of the Mac, but the same thing applies, you know, with, with, with you substitute UI kit in for app kit, and the same things apply sort of on iOS. People don't know what to do on iOS either. Yeah, and the sad thing is developers, I mean, my heart goes out to them because you've got to make a decision where are you going to invest all your time and money. Like AppKit is more stable right now. and um, But the time you spend on AppKit, there's a very good chance in a few years that stuff's not going to work and you're going to have to redo it all. UIKit is supposedly the future, but it's super broken and it's missing features. So it's like a lot of pain to work in it now. Yeah. And, you know, and, and so I really, I don't know what the answer is. And, and also, you know, power users are going to give you a beating no matter what you do, because if you use AppKit and you don't get the latest and greatest features showing up for Swift UI, they're going to be mad. If you use Swift UI and features don't work because Apple hasn't sorted out yet, they're going to get mad. If you go to Electron, they're definitely going to get mad. So it's like, I don't know what you're supposed to do. And I, uh, yeah, I do think as users, we need to give the developers a little patience as we sort through all this stuff. Well, I will say a couple things. Um, I don't think it's clear like I was saying, it was sort of becoming obvious that Carbon was going to be uh, out of date at some point. I don't think it's yet totally clear what the story is for AppKit. And it, to the extent that I wouldn't say that investing in AppKit today is investing in something that's not going to be supported in a few years. Like, I don't hmm. know that that's true. And that's what part of what makes it so, so kind of fuzzy right now. Um, the other thing is, at this point... I don't know of many, if any, features exist that developers can only reasonably provide to um, to users with Swift UI or Catalyst. I mean, there's kind of some edge case things like, well, if you want to run certain iOS only interfaces, then yeah, you have to use Catalyst if you want that to run on uh, a Mac. Um, but in general, I would say AppKit is still in a position to provide superior apps um, across the board. Everything that people like about Swift UI and Catalyst is in is the is the extent to which it serves the developer, not the user. Uh, it might be a little bit of an overstatement, but I think that's approximately right. It's it's not like a developer using Swift UI 
gets you this amazing new experience that is, uh, you know, can't be imitated by AppKit. It's more that it makes it more approachable for the developer to make a cross-platform app. Uh, it's not like using Catalyst makes it so you can develop, you know, the greatest Mac app. It's that it lets some developers have a Mac app at all without going through all the work of, you know, making an app from scratch. So I think the situation we're in right now, if any developer had infinite time, which I know, obviously it's a, it's a, it's a, not it's a non-existent thing you know nobody has infinite time but if you did i don't see how you wouldn't choose AppKit right now just because it is the framework that lets you provide all of the functionality that a mac user could want um now everything else like i said there's trade-offs and if you need to support ios and the mac maybe using swift ui or catalyst is the right trade-off but it's not a trade-off that really benefits users directly except to the extent that it allows a developer to um to to justify being available on one platform or more thank you for sharing that because i mean i honestly have been confused from the outside as to what what we should be telling people because we hear from listeners about this all the time i am a little biased towards AppKit, but it's not for um lack of trying to appreciate swift ui i have i have i i and i do appreciate swift ui it's just not progressing as fast as i thought it might and, you know actually swift itself makes a good contrast because swift when it first came out what is it now 7 years i don't know it's been a while something like um, that yeah when it first came out it was simultaneously amazing and infuriating developers on the mac um, immediately ran into so many shortcomings. And then it was also changing so quickly. People who embraced Swift in the first few years found themselves having to rewrite or migrate their code repeatedly. But it did change very fast. And I don't have any reservations now recommending that developers use Swift. Um, so as a language, that's an example of something that Apple introduced completely disrupted their own platform and then proceeded to iterate on it at such a rate that um, that I think they've succeeded. It's a success. Now, there's some, some people out there who don't like Swift and who would prefer Objective-C, but I don't think, even if they don't like it, I don't think they can argue that Swift hasn't, you know, it, it's achieved its goals. Um, and that's not quite true yet for Swift UI. And I feel kind of like I would have wanted to see a trajectory more like Swift's trajectory in that like each year being kind of blown away by by upgrades. And I'm not trying to, you know, put down the Apple teams that are working on this. It's just as it turns out, you know, you 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 get what you you get done what you can get done and what has gotten done doesn't yet compel um most developers of suitably complicated Mac apps to mm -hmm. want to just like run to Swift UI. Right. And thinking about that, you know, the, the carbon time frame, I remember Apple making a big deal that the Finder was built with carbon. And then eventually they rewrote the Finder to be 
cocoa and leaving carbon behind. And I think that in particular was sort of the canary in the the coal mine for a lot of developers. You know, as we sit here today at the end of 2021, SwiftUI is only two years old, two and a half years old. And we've just now seen the first major Mac app from Apple be built with it. And that's shortcuts and shortcuts launched with a, a lot of issues, a lot of issues related to the UI. And so I do try to encourage people to remember that the this is not a perfect analogy to the past, but also these things take time. And just because Swift is X years old or Swift UI is X years old doesn't necessarily mean much until we start to see Apple embrace it. You know, c- contrast Swift UI with something like Catalyst, which Apple has embraced on the Mac. Uh, the Maps app, Messages, and others have become Catalyst apps based on the iPad OS code base and design. But coming to the Mac and being uh, Macified in a way, and so I, I really look at what is Apple doing with this to be an indicator of of maybe where the things are going. But Apple's moving yeah. very slowly, right? I would imagine that. Uh, you know, 90-something percent of, of the projects that make up Mac OS are still AppKit. And I think that's, it's going to take time for this to happen. So, Daniel, I, I agree with you. I think that AppKit is, is, still has plenty of time uh, left. And, you know, even just looking at Apple's responsibilities as a developer, these other tools aren't there yet. And they're pushing on them. And I think SwiftUI will be a lot better because the shortcuts team chose it to build out the new version of shortcuts for the Mac. But I don't think AppKit's, you know, expiration date is anytime super soon. Right. And in fact, when you um, see people sort of pushing back at Apple on Swift UI, um, a lot of times Apple folks from Apple will say Swift UI is not intended to supersede anything yet. So they will actually even endorse this um this approach of sort of falling back to the native framework where you need to um and then and in some ways i think that is the way forward is is to say hey if you can get some value out of swift ui today um for let's say the main window of your app but or let's say maybe be- better um better to say like if you can for instance like renovate your app's preferences window mm-hmm. with swift ui and it makes it a lot easier for you to manage. It looks nicer, you know, whatever. There's some some benefits to that. Go ahead and do that. But that doesn't necessarily mean you need to, you know, renovate the main window or, you know, let's say taking Adobe as an example. If they were going to, um, say, change a preferences panel over to Swift UI, that might be a lot more approachable than changing the whole drawing canvas over yeah, and, and that's what we're hearing. I mean, talking without naming names, I'm talking to developers now who are working for new updated Mac applications, and most of them are taking a hybrid approach. You know, they're trying to start to incorporate Swift UI, but they're absolutely still using AppKit. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the way to, uh, the, the trick for developers is usually to not get too excited and to, you know, don't abandon all the old stuff right away, but try to design stuff, even if you're using quote unquote old stuff, design it so that it will be ready to 
transition to something else. And, you know, I guess if there's a silver lining on the fact that um, Apple's giving us so many choices and sort of uh, conflicting messages in some ways, it's that it does encourage us to make our code sort of adaptable. So, you know, the, the, the stuff that makes an app, the app is mostly unique to each developer. So if you can package that in a way that, um, you know, you'll be able to easily or relatively easily switch it from one framework to another, that's good for you. And ultimately it'll make you, you know, like if AppKit disappears in, let's say, 10 years, uh, I would like to hope that I would have a pretty easy time switching things over to whatever's next. And I'm not going to get too too um, worried about sticking with AppKit while I, while I feel like I need to because you know, I see these people just spending too much time trying to be on the on the bleeding edge of things. And I do that sometimes, but sometimes it's also better just to just to ride the the stable, the stable old uh, old reliable framework. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Electric. Say that you have a whole fleet of Apple devices. They probably used to be arranged neatly, carried to and from the office predictably, handed directly to team members on their first day, and used precisely for work, securely connected to the office network. Well, today's different. Now they're strewn across the land. Your company iPads, iPhones, and Macs are out there connecting to dodgy coffee shop Wi-Fi, being left behind on flights, moonlighting as child's toy and playrooms turned work-from-home offices. What could go wrong? Well, thanks to Electric, you don't have to worry about what could go wrong. They give you fully supported device management for Apple devices. Electric device management automates device provisioning and setup, remotely enforces security and compliance across your fleet, and gives you visibility into your device inventory and health at all times. Electric uses the world's leading mobile device management providers and tops it off with world-class IT support for fully managed devices. And they have over 100 IT specialists ready to field your team's IT requests. So stop stressing about scattered devices. Head on over to electric.ai mpu to get started. And for taking a qualified meeting with their team, they're going to give you a pair of Beats Solo 3 wireless headphones. That's electric.ai slash MPU to get your free pair of Beats Solo 3 wireless headphones today when you schedule a meeting. Our thanks to Electric for their support of the show. So Daniel, we've been getting through the show. We're, we're quite a long time, and we haven't even talked about any of your apps. I want to um, take a minute to look at the stuff that you are currently actively developing for the Mac and talk about it. The first, which is an app that, uh, that both Stephen and I have used, is, is MarsEdit. Yeah, MarsEdit is, um, it's, it's funny, um, I, I don't want to keep hammering on this 10 years thing, but um, I, I think 10 years ago um, was more, let's see, I guess it's been more than that now. I've, I've, I've been actively developing MarsEdit since 2007, now that I think of it. Um, and I originally acquired MarsEdit from n- another well-known Mac developer, Brent Simmons. Um, and it's just been kind of one of my 
true software loves for these past almost 15 years now. Uh, it's, it's, uh, you, you guys know what it is, uh, but it's a blog editor app. So I usually describe it as an app for people. Um, it's, it's kind of like a mail client is to something like Gmail. Um, Mars Edit is to something like WordPress. So it's an app that you run on your Mac to make it easier to write, publish, manage your posts on the web. Because you should never write a blog post on WordPress if That's you right. don't want to inevitably lose a lot of work. It's funny the 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 web. I have to give it give the web uh, development community, the web browser community, a lot of credit because over the past twenty or so years, that everyone has repeatedly said, "Do not write text in web browsers." They have increasingly improved web browsers to the point that a lot of times. When you think you've lost text in a web browser, you haven't. But <laughs> inevitably, people still seem to keep managing to find ways to write text in a web browser and then lose it all. So I do tend to still agree. Uh, don't don't write don't write long bits of of work in a web browser if you can avoid it. And Mars Edit is certainly uh, one option for folks who want to have a place to write their blog posts and. Save them locally. Know that you have a safe, locally saved copy, and um, and then put them up for everyone to see when they're ready. I use it every single day. It's on my dock right here. Awesome, and it's AppKit, all AppKit, beautiful <laughs> AppKit. <laughs> and then you also just updated. I think my favorite app that you make is Fast Scripts, and we just got version three of that. And yeah. I'll, I'll explain that one to folks. So you know how Apple has this amazing scripting language called Apple Script, and it allows you to do a lot of automation on your Mac. I feel like the Apple Script team did an amazing job embedding Apple Script into the Mac, giving you the ability to add automation to applications and tie things together that you wouldn't be able to if you weren't able to use Apple Script. But I feel like where they went to lunch early was in the implementation, like. You know, getting these scripts to run, like you save it as an app to your desktop or I mean, what do you do to get these scripts to run short of opening the script editor and running them? And Daniel solved the problem with fast scripts. He put a thing in the menu bar, you put your favorite scripts up there and they just run. And um, that's an app that I use every day. And uh, how, how did you come up with the idea for fast scripts? Yeah, it's funny. It's such a blunt name, Fast Scripts. It's like a cave yeah. person just, you know, said, to me want Fast Scripts, you know. Uh, yeah. That's, I think, how I was feeling at the time. I wrote this app originally, I think I started working on it in 2000 or so, 2001. Um, it was while I was still uh, working at Apple. And I remember I had a, um, a Christmas break off for the holidays and I was just so excited to have some time to work on something on my own. And at that time, for whatever reason, I was I was looking at fast scripts, or I was sorry, I was looking at Apple Script, intrigued by Apple Script, but so frustrated. It seemed like it was designed for people, and this is a very important market. It was designed for people who wanted to be able to open up a script that would say um, automate like the typesetting of a 300 page book. And so yeah. you open it up in script editor and you'd set up the beautiful script and you'd run it. And three hours later, you'd have your typeset book, let's say. 
And I know that that was a huge market and still is a huge market for Apple Script and automation in general. But the kinds of things I wanted to do with scripts were um, things that wouldn't save me three hours at one sitting, but that would save me 10 seconds, like hundreds and hundreds of times again and again. Um, And there was no way that I could find on the Mac at that time to um to achieve this i i i don't remember the specifics but i think at that time you did have to open the script in script editor uh and then run it and um I, since then apple has a script menu of their own but i don't think at that time when i made fast scripts that they even had a script menu uh and it fast scripts was sort of inspired by um an old Mac OS 9, Mac OS, you know, 789 app that was called, I think it was called OSA menu. And that all that did, quote unquote, all that did was put um, a, a, a icon in the menu bar that you could select a script from and it would run it. And I thought that's what Mac OS 10 needs. And so I just made that at, at first. And the 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 breakthrough then was I could have, I could be, for instance, in my text editor, and this was also before the time of anything like text expander or anything like that. I could be in a text uh, editor, for example, and I could select some text, and then I could just go click in the menu bar and say, let's say, capitalize this text, you know? Um, and you can imagine how how different that workflow is from having to say, go switch to script editor, open up a script called capitalize text, you know, tell app text edit to capitalize, whatever, you know. Um, so for me, that was really the key was I, I made fast scripts. I remember that having that feeling, there's no way to run short scripts, basically, um, because it would take like 20 seconds or something just to load up the script and run it. And uh, so that now, now I'm remembering another um, major design goal for fast scripts at the time was not only would it load all your scripts from your script menu uh from your script folder it would keep them all in memory so it had a it made a point of loading preparing the script and being ready to run it at a moment's notice and that was where a lot of the time savings was because when you loaded it in Apple's script editor, it would have to load it and compile it and run it each time. Um, and so that was the, it's funny, that was like the major distinguishing feature of fast scripts and what I thought warranted calling it fast. Yeah. And now fast forward 20 years, the latest version, fast scripts three, this is a good example of having to sort of adapt to the times because um, that speed bottleneck is not the same anymore. So with fast scripts three, Quite the opposite. Nowadays, in FastScripts three, one of its one of its selling points is whenever you select a script, it launches a whole separate app from scratch to run the script in isolation, separate from the main app. So it's like a complete turnaround from what my priorities were at the beginning. But it's still lightning fast because the the OS has changed, hardware has changed, the way sure. everything works has changed. 
the overhead now exists to make it a separate instance, but that gives you an additional benefit. That's right. Yeah. And so now, the, you know, now with FastScripts 3, which just, as you said, just came out, um, it now, it, it lets you run as many of these scripts at once as you want to, whereas before I was always limited to one script at a time. Uh, but it's still the same basic idea. Uh, and then over the years, um, of course, a major feature of it now uh, is that you can assign keyboard shortcuts. So really going to the script menu is um, something I only do every once in a while. But um, being able to put keyboard shortcut on it. So, uh, you know, like so many other apps out there that achieve similar things, Keyboard Maestro is a great example. Um being able to give a keyboard shortcut to uh, a task that would otherwise take you longer or be more tedious than uh, than if you could just automate it. This is the first version of FastScripts that's not in the Mac App Store. Uh, do you have any right. a, yeah. anything to to add to that other than the you know the normal <laughs> <laughs> Mac App Store <laughs> stuff? You know, it's so funny because FastScripts is was only in the App Store because of my eagerness to jump into the App Store as soon as it debuted. Um, because if you remember back to when Apple started the Mac App Store, um, it was before so-called app sandboxing was introduced. So in retrospect, it was really awkward timing for Apple because they came out with the Mac App Store. And they said, hey, everybody come into the Mac App Store. It's great. It's a great place to sell your Mac apps. A bunch of us said, great, we're, we're in. And I included FastScripts in that. And then about a year later, they said, by the way, everything needs to be sandboxed. Um, and that, that immediately changed what was qualified to be in the App Store. But they said, we understand there's already some apps in there that aren't sandboxed. So they're going to be allowed to stay in, but only for bug fixes, which was this very amorphous, you know, standard. Um, somehow I ended up leaving FastScripts in the store for the, the, the next 10 years. Um, I, I, at first I was really diligent, quote unquote, only doing bug fixes. But then as the years went on, I was like adding fairly substantial new features here and there. Um, I think it's possible nobody works at Apple in the app store who knows anymore that there are, um, these weird, like, uh, non-sandboxed apps. Uh, mm. But but with FastScripts 3, I knew I wanted to charge an upgrade fee and I knew that I wanted to basically make it a new app. And that I knew that I, I couldn't present to Apple the same app that is already in the App Store, but as a new app that they wouldn't approve it. So that was my that was what cemented my decision to leave the App Store. Um, I could still technically open up the old version again for sale on the App Store, but um, I think it's just time to make a clean break. And the, you know, just to clarify for folks, the reason FastScripts can't be sandboxed is it needs to do um, so many subtle things, subtle nuanced things with the execution of scripts that um, just don't just don't fit in the um, in the sandboxed mm-hmm. rules. Yeah, I mean, it depends what the script does. I mean, you're going to need access to stuff to run the script. That's that's true. And even just, but there's many dimensions to it as well, because even just having the access to read the scripts in from the conventional location would require special permission. 
So it's like you're like Lando Calrissian. This field <laughs> just gets worse all the time. It really does. It really, you know, there. And I'm not even a person who's against sandboxing. I all my other apps are sandboxed. You know, Mars Edit is also in the App Store, and it technically had that same um, provision where it could have stayed sandboxed indefinitely. Um, but it, I saw that it was more reasonable to sandbox it. So I sandboxed it. And I would, I, I think there's a lot of good reasons to sandbox software. But when sandboxing it literally makes it useless, I think that's where we have to draw the line. So happy to sandbox when it makes sense. But um, if not, then I'm just going to try to make the app as useful as possible. All right. So Daniel, you've been an app developer, Mac app developer for 20 years. You worked inside Apple for several years. If Tim Cook called you and said, Daniel, I'm going to grant your three wishes. I'm going to be your genie. Uh, to, <laughs> to fix the Mac app store, what are the three things that you would do? The first thing, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not even going to claim that these are necessarily the right order or priority. I'm just going to tell you what comes to mind first. Uh, first of all, allow developers to proactively grant refunds to customers. Um, second, allow developers to provide you know, bona fide, straightforward uh, trial period to customers. Currently, we have to jump through hoops to try to to achieve anything like that. Um, and then third, I would say um, a, an officially supported paid upgrade mechanism because sure. everything has gone towards um, subscription-based software. And maybe that is the future. And I'm not, I'm not going to... Um, I'm not going to deny it if, it if if an opportunity to make subscription software presents it to me and it seems like the best choice, I'll take that. But it's not the way we've been doing things for a long time. A lot of us still want to sell software with the option of a paid upgrade. And the fact that Apple doesn't support it well, it just makes it so confusing for, for people. Um, you know, I kind of jump through hoops to provide something akin to paid upgrades and it confuses people. I'm glad I'm able to do it, but it's confusing. You know, the the side effects are that, for example, my app has to be listed in the app store as a free app. And so people always get confused. They think it's free, then it's not. Uh, And then, you know, if they download the free app, Apple says they paid for it when they didn't. It's just all confusing. You, you, You guys know all about that, but... Um, I guess those are the three things that jump to mind for me. I think that the the usability of the App Store for most users is fantastic. And who wouldn't want to just be able to log into a new Mac and say, yeah, download all my apps? You know, that's so much easier than anything any third party really can reasonably provide. But um, if we're not able to sort of replicate the same business user relationship that we have outside the app store, that's just going to be a constant struggle. You know, it's interesting to the listener that I just thought of that question as I asked it. We didn't, you know, this is not in the outline, but you immediately had three things. You didn't no. require any uh, consideration. <laughs> it was so. That, and that's why, I, that's why I said that, you know, I'm not sure those are the top three or anything. It's just, but you're right. We didn't have any preparation for that. That's just three things. Because I've been mulling over problems with the App Store for 10 years, it's not hard for me to come up with with three. Now, now one other app you have that I think folks should know about is Black Ink. And it's the 
it's the crossword weapon of choice on the Mac. And I, <laughs> I, I, how did you get into making a crossword app? Well, this is a funny one, and it's kind of funny. My history with crosswords goes back to Apple. Speaking of those early days working at Apple, um, we had this great pastime that, um, you know, starting in about 2000, no, starting in about 1996, a um, bunch of people would come into my office and we would sit around and group solve the New York Times crossword puzzle together. Um and we used the app called Across Light, which is was and is one of the standard sort of crossword solving apps um, out there. Fast forward to to the year two thousand seventeen. No, two thousand seven. I get these decades wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, two thousand seven. I was actually in the process of acquiring MarsEdit from Brit Simmons, and. I, I don't want to go too long on this, so I'll just summarize it. Basically, circumstances led me to make a blog post that said, I want somebody to sell me an app for $5,000. And it was based on this like public issue that was going down at the time where somebody had gotten sort of ripped off for $5,000. Um, I said, come on, sell me an app for $5,000 and I will actually pay you. Um, and I got like 20 or 25 offers and they're very interesting offers from all across the spectrum. And one of them was this developer who happened to live in the same uh, area, New England. And he said he wanted to sell me this, this app called Mac Xword. Um, and I thought back to those times when I had spent, you know, solving the puzzles at Apple. And I hadn't really been into crosswords as much. Uh, at that point, but I thought, you know what, this could be a lot of fun. Like I, I obviously love crosswords. I had, I had also done a lot of crossword solving as a kid. There's like an aesthetic intellectual kind of, you know, cultural affinity there. Um, so partly to just sort of fulfill this weird, uh, transaction of like wanting to acquire something for a relatively small amount of money and then breathe life into it. Um, and partly because I had a true passion for crosswords, um, I acquired this app at the time, put it in perspective, it was 100% Java based. Wow. Um, <laughs> okay. And, and this is another historical blip, uh, you know, in the Apple history of Apple's frameworks. Um, when they start, started marketing AppKit to developers, they presented it as a, as a two forked road. You could either program in Objective-C or in Java. And um, a lot of people took the Java route, and that was unfortunate for them because it was it was one of the examples of Apple actually having more choices than they should have. And they ended up eventually uh, basically getting rid of Java uh, for, for Mac apps. Um, so I ended up acquiring this app, converted it to Objective-C, put a kind of a fresh coat of paint on it and started selling it. And it's been just kind of one of my beloved like side project apps almost. I use it nowadays. I um, I solve the New York Times puzzle every day. And like you said, it's just uh, for a lot of people, it is the weapon of choice for solving crosswords on the Mac. And it's if you like crosswords, again, it's, it's kind of a trend of my my apps offering desktop alternatives to things that a lot of people do in a web browser. And a lot of people go into a web browser to solve the New York Times, to solve other newspapers, puzzles. 
And this is an opportunity to solve puzzles like that, but in a native Mac app. I mean, and that's one of the reasons why I so much wanted to talk to you today about the state of all these programming environments, because in my head, you are like one of the, you know, one of the best Mac developers. And that's been your focus this whole time. I mean, you don't have a lot of stuff you're making for iPhone and iPad. You are a Mac developer. You're right. And I mean, I've I've dipped my toes into the iOS world um, repeatedly and for and for a long time. Uh, and I have stuff in the works. I mean, I'm, I've been public about some of it. Like I have I do have a public um, test flight for Black Ink. Speaking of Black Ink, I have an iOS version that is oh, nice. That people can try. I didn't um, even realize that. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I I haven't been promoting it a lot. And it's um another sort of like pattern of my developer productivity over the past few years has been, you know, taking quite a while to finally complete things. And so for instance, fast scripts being finally fast scripts three being out. Uh I think I ran into you, you guys both in the WWDC San Jose like two and a half years ago and I was basically talking about it like Fast Scripts was going to be out next month and and it's things just take a while so um but Black Ink for iOS is closer to being to, to being shipped than a lot of my iOS stuff and I also have um my eye on a on a Mars edit port to iOS yes <laughs> but um I have to say, one of the things that's so nice about the Mac is being able to charge forty dollars for an app, and people don't laugh you off of the off of the screen. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's one of the things I think a lot of traditional desktop developers of of like productivity apps in particular have trouble with iOS how to how to position the app so that they both make enough money from it to make it worth their while and that and that you know the customer base doesn't see it as ridiculously out of out of um, balance as far as price goes yeah i don't know how that got started the idea that you know five dollars is a ridiculous amount of money for an app but right it it is a thing on the iphone yeah so i think you know speaking of um i as i venture into ios that might be where I start to experiment with it with a subscription approach, because the fact of the matter is subscriptions annoy a lot of people, but human nature being what it is, people are more willing to swallow a sustainable fee when it's, you know, trickle, trickle, uh, at a time, uh, you know, dollars per, per year instead of, you know, tens of dollars all up, up, up front. So, um, that might be where I try it out. I'm gonna, as I go into iOS, I think I'm going to be probably a little defiant about pricing and just say, you know what, this is how, this is how much I need to get paid. And hopefully some people will choose to pay for it. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com slash MPU and make your next move and enter offer code MPU at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build your online presence and run your business. From websites and online stores to marketing tools and analytics, they've got it all covered. Squarespace combines cutting-edge design and world-class engineering, making it easier than ever to establish your home online and make your ideas a reality. 
Squarespace has everything you need to create a beautiful and modern website. You start with a professionally designed template and use drag and drop tools to make it your own. With Squarespace, you can customize the look and feel and the settings, the products you have on sale, and more with just a few clicks. And all Squarespace websites are optimized for mobile, so your content automatically adjusts so it will look great on any device. With Squarespace, you'll get free unlimited hosting, top-of-the-line security, and dependable resources to help you succeed. There's nothing to patch or upgrade. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help, and they'll even let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name, so you don't even have to monkey around with that. Plus, you'll have everything you need for SEO and email marketing to get your ideas out there. There is so much you can do with Squarespace. You can turn your big idea into a new website or showcase your work or publish your next blog post or promote your business or announce an upcoming event and much more. I became a Squarespace believer, I don't know, something like 10 years ago because I got tired of having to manage the Max Sparky website and the plugins would get corrupted and it always seemed like there was a problem. Switching to Squarespace just solved it for me and I've been a very happy customer ever since. So why not head to squarespace.com MPU for a free trial with no credit card required. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MPU to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com MPU. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for the Mac Power users. Our thanks to Squarespace for their support of the Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. Daniel, we like to close these uh, guest interviews with uh, maybe some favorite apps and services that you use that have made their way into your workflow, but we haven't been able to touch on yet. What comes to mind? Well, it's funny. I I've, I've, I mentioned how I acquired um, Mars Edit from Brent Simmons and. I think it's worth mentioning for folks who don't already know, probably most of your audience knows, but that his um, very well-regarded RSS reader, Net Newswire, has had a, had a glorious revival over the past mm-hmm. few years. And it's unusual, in my opinion, for a few reasons. One, that it's completely open source, but like top-notch um, Mac app. So it's an unusual situation where this beautiful, modern, highly performant, thoughtfully designed app is also something anybody can contribute to. Um, So it's an example of an app that's always running on my Mac um, that I kind of find, like I have a little affinity for it also. It's like a member of the family, right? Um, But a little bit of trivia, Mars Edit, not only did I acquire it from... uh, Brent Simmons, basically. Uh, but Mars Edit started out as a feature of NetNewsWire. And um, Brent decided to spin it off, uh, you know, almost 20 years ago into a separate app. So there's sort of, um, I think we still have a little bit of like aesthetic and functional. We see things the same way. And I, I like NetNewsWire um, for that reason, partly. Uh, so it's been great for me because for a while I was kind of getting out of the habit of using RSS again because there wasn't a, a lot of the other apps. There are great apps out there, but none of them was really scratching the NetNewsWire itch for me. Um, and it's great to have like a, a fully modern back in action 
uh, Net Newswire that I use. So that's one thing that comes to mind. Um, I knew this was coming, so I started looking through my apps folder. And um, I remembered uh, also looking back at my my last appearance on the show, there was some funny old stuff like MAMP, M-A-M-P, um, for, and it's funny to see that I'm still so interested in some of the same things, but MAMP back then, it, it was, and I think still is, it's like an environment for running um, like basically like Linux on your Mac. Um, and these days, I'm really jazzed about Docker. And I think Docker is something um, a lot of web developers know about, but I think a lot of power users could really benefit from it if they don't already know about it. Uh, and are either one of you kind of familiar with or use Docker? I'm familiar with it, but I have not like dove in the pool. Tell, tell us for, explain what it is for all of us. Sure. Well, so Docker takes this idea of basically, you know, it's kind of similar to what we were talking about earlier with running things like Wine or uh, Crossover. The thing that's brilliant about Docker is it takes the idea of um, all the rules and steps that would would build a custom like server instance of any kind. Um, and it's kind of a standard environment for rebuilding and running those things. And um, so the reason I think it's really useful for not just for developers, but for power users is it gives you the tools to run not just arbitrary like apps or services, but arbitrary apps and services in an arbitrary environment like I know that's kind of makes it kind of hard to understand, but just as an example, let's say you are a power user who really loves Emacs, but for whatever reason, the version of Emacs that you love only works with like a version of Red Hat Linux from like five years ago. Um, Docker gives you the ability to basically bring up like whatever version of whatever OS you want or, you know, a simulation of it, basically a a stand-in for it and to install whatever versions of whatever software you want on top of that. Um, So this came up recently for a friend of mine who actually uses like a Ruby-based script for static website generation to publish their blog. And they were lamenting that the um, latest version of macOS, the Ruby, didn't no longer worked with their with their script. So I said, "Here, this is what you need to do," and basically gave them a little recipe for setting up a Docker instance. That it sounds it sounds like it's over the top and, and overkill, but it's it's a very lightweight solution um, for what it does. You can basically put together a Docker script that will essentially let you run like an old version of Ruby on uh, the equivalent of an old version of Linux. And it all just works. And you can install all the dependencies and it all lives in this little thing called a container. And then the beautiful thing about Docker is once you've come up with one of these containers, you can share the recipe with anybody else. So like, for instance, if you go to hub.docker.com, it's kind of like a GitHub uh, but for pre-built software solutions. And um, I know that's all kind of vague, but for instance, it lets me run on my Mac 
a perfect simulation of the Linux uh, web web server that my website runs on. Um, and I can bring it up or shut it down. Uh, I can experiment with installing completely different, you know, Linux software uh, as the back end, trying new packages there, um, and just experiment on my Mac. And but you could use it to do um, just about anything. Like you could use it to um, run a Minecraft server on your Mac in a container that didn't have any impact on the rest of your Mac. So kind of the basic idea of Docker is to be able to compartmentalize a whole software stack into uh, a kind of a protected little environment. And then you can run them on anything, really. You can run them on a Linux server. You can run them on your Mac, on Intel. You can run them on Apple Silicon. So it's been a really nice tool for me over the past few years to really not only um, have these really uh, predictable environments to run specific tool chains in, but um, also just the fact that um, that yeah, I can I can try so many different things, and you can you can use Docker to run, for example, a command that you would have used to have had to completely like install. You know, like people use Homebrew or a similar technology uh, to install open source software, but that really kind of I mean. Not 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 to mean it in too pejorative of a way, but it really messes up your system if you are concerned about like what's installed. Um, and the nice thing about Docker is you don't have to install everything on your actual Mac. It just all goes into a little protected container. In fact, as I understand it, I know several folks are using Docker specifically for homebrew. And oh yeah, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So if you want to just you, right, there's nothing preventing you from running everything that you would let um affect your whole mac running it in a docker container and then yeah it's 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 just a nice way for predictability and then just to kind of feel a little protected from the various software you might not feel so confident about installing on your main mac the thing you said about that that makes me most interested is the word lightweight because i feel like we're getting to this inflection point where like historical utility tools are just getting so heavy you know it's like um the um i took a gig last year doing some screencasting for windows and i was going to do it with parallels but it just added so much weight it felt like to my mac you know with all of the various tools that come with it and everything so much so that i just built into the budget i said you guys buy me a windows laptop and i'll mail it to you when i'm done (laughs) yeah and you know and dropbox is another example i feel like they've just it's become so much and then like everybody's talking about this new app maelstrom which is kind of like a lightweight dropbox client that takes away a bunch of features but suddenly doesn't have you know 30 different processes running on your mac just to sync files and and i feel like docker is like akin to that where people are coming up with these lightweight solutions to do solve narrow problems and not become a huge thing on your computer yeah i mean i think the reason i use the term lightweight is not that it's completely lightweight but that in contrast with what you used to have to do to to achieve the same thing um like it feels like you've installed a complete installation of Linux on a custom server, but it's not really that. It's just this little clever configuration. Uh, I don't even claim to understand it completely, but at its core, the the concepts behind Docker aren't 
like we're making a whole virtual machine. It's more we're making it's it's a little bit more along the lines of the crossover approach in that it's just making the environment exist that the app expects to exist. Yeah, did you hear me try to explain what crossover does? Because I I honestly don't understand it. So maybe explaining <laughs> it earlier was pretty rough. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I the fact is, I'm as I'm talking to you here. I said earlier that I'm on my beautiful MacBook Pro. I didn't bother quitting and restarting my whole Mac. Um, among the many things that's running right now is Docker hosting a complete simulation of my web server. Um, and I just loaded the web page here to make sure that it's still up, and there it is. Uh, it's it's so nice. I just and now I just keep Docker running, um, and it means that I can try anything from like the whole larger world of open source web, you know, networking based development. I can try it relatively worry free, and with and in a way that I can just try it and throw it out if I don't want it and experiment. It's a really nice. Nice tool. Any other apps or services we should check out? Well, I'm just looking down my list here. I won't go on as long as I did about Docker, but I um, one other third-party app that I use all the time still is my actually a friend of mine, uh, Gus Mueller, makes a great image editor called Acorn. That's yep. always almost always open, to be honest. Um, I, there's this other app I use all the time, and I'm not a prude by any means, but. I'm a little embarrassed by the name of this app. And it's for people who ever want to open a huge binary file and make hex edits. And you guys might know the name of this app already, but it's called Hex Fiend. I don't know if that's yeah. familiar to you. Um, it's a great app that is just super reliable for anything like editing huge binary files. Um, and then the other thing that comes to mind is... Um, This is particularly valuable to folks who um, might have like an old scanner. You guys fall into this trap where you get an older scanner and then they stop supporting the driver. Um, I'm looking here at my ScanSnap S1500M, which is at least 10 years old, but works perfectly. And the only reason it works perfectly for me is because of this app ViewScan. Uh, V-U-E-S-C-A-N. And it's like a one-time $40, $50 purchase. But it basically, their their expertise is like having figured out how to support old scanners that the companies don't want to support themselves anymore. And I just love that that, they give me the power to keep this thing out of the, out of the, you know, landfill. Uh, Yeah. So that's a cool app. Yeah, there that is always an issue, right? When hardware companies decide not to continue, and um, I'm glad that there are third parties out there trying to pick up the slack. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at their webpage. It says we reverse engineered over 6,500 scanners. <laughs> wow! <laughs> so you know what? They deserve my forty, fifty dollars, whatever. Yeah, yeah, they do. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for um, for coming on and. Um, 10 years, man. We're not going to wait 10 years to have you back, I promise. <laughs> I would be happy to come back at any time. It's always really, really fun to be on this show and any of your other shows. It's a great time. Yeah, and there's just a lot to cover with the Mac, and there's so much going on. And and you are like so much at the front edge of this stuff in your role as developer. And, and also, tell us a little bit about your podcast. Oh, yeah. So Core Intuition is my podcast. 
Uh, if folks want to check it out, it's at coreint.org. And it's me and my longtime friend, Manton Reese, who is also an indie developer. He makes the uh, micro.blog service, which is, it's funny, he's a longtime Mac developer who has branched out into being a web service developer, but it's basically a, um, it's kind of an open, uh, civilized alternative to Twitter. And, um, but we do this show weekly, Core Intuition, which is basically us chatting like we are here, but all about the triumphs and the defeats of indie software development, trying to keep ourselves motivated, reacting to what Apple does, talking about our progress with our apps, talking about what Apple's doing, how the world, what the, what the world is doing in tech and Apple in general. Um, and it's just kind of, I, I sometimes call it like my weekly therapy session with Manton because I can just go off on whatever challenges or excitements are, are facing us in the Mac development world. Yeah, and if you're interested in you know the perspective of developers, this is a great window because uh, Manton and Daniel Manton's been on the show as well, and uh, these are very well spoken gents who really understand the business, and I I find it very insightful uh, every time I listen. Thank you. And where else can people find you, Daniel? Well, we hinted at this earlier. I am on Twitter. Um, Daniel Punk Ass is the name, and it's. Funny, I think of it as so tame now. I know people find that name provocative, so maybe don't type it at work. <laughs> but um, it is my it is my name on Twitter. I'm also on Microdot Blog with the same name. And uh, Red Sweater. This past year, I had the great joy of graduating from Red-Sweater.com, which I had to say for the last 20 years to being able to just say redsweater.com because I was finally you killed able, the dash. Congratulations. I killed the dash and I was finally able to acquire this this the domain that I've been coveting forever. Um so it's a very very happy uh upgrade. redsweater.com you'll find all those apps we talked about. Um and then between that and the Twitter I think you'd be pretty pretty well set to discover more about me. How how many red sweaters do you own, Daniel? You know, the funny thing is I don't own any red sweaters. It's somehow oh, I got all of my... I am let my, down. I know, I know. But I did own a red sweater at the time I came up with the company name. It's just that it was um, it was just a ratty old red sweater with holes that didn't last much longer than the establishment of the company. So I happened to be wearing this red sweater when I had to come up with the company name. And then I came up with the company name and I've yet to, uh, maybe I feel like I, I, maybe I feel like the, uh, the sweater has to be so perfect or so good to live up to, uh, to the namesake now. Yeah, the standards of the software, you just, right, it, it's right. just impossible. I can't just pick any red sweater, you know, you don't want to just get like a cheap red sweater. It's going to, you know, shrink uh, in the are, wash. You know, like when you go into a restaurant and they've got like the first dollar bill hung on the yeah, wall. Right, right, right. There you I, go. I have this yeah. image of Daniel with his like a moth-eaten sweater <laughs> hanging behind his desk. I wish I would have kept it in retrospect, but I didn't. I don't think I. I think I got rid of it before I knew quite what a legacy there would be. All right. Well, I was giving Stephen a hard time, but it's my fault we didn't get you on the show. We are not going to let that happen again. Thanks so much for coming in, Daniel, and. um we will see you soon. We are the Mac Power Users. You can find us at relay.fm slash MPU. Uh, you can find our forums over at talk.macpowerusers.com. 
thank you to our sponsors today, and that's our friends over at 1Password, Smile, Electric, and Squarespace, and we'll see you next week.